Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And I pray for those that are here that consciences have been bothered all week, Lord. And they need to hear a word from you. They need to hear the word of grace from you. I pray for those that are here that um, have become hardened to you and, and need you to break down that hardness, Lord. And we pray that you do that. I pray for those who are here that are struggling with health issues or families that have health issues, um, issues with their families, all these burdens that we bring, Lord, burdens from work, all kinds of things that we might bring here. We pray, Lord, that you wouldn't just erase our minds of those burdens, but that you would be bigger than all those things this morning. As we look at your word, that the truth of the gospel and who Jesus is and who you are as our Father, Lord, would shine in such a way that those, those problems would become much more uh, small and manageable. Lord, we pray that you would fill our hearts with joy and peace in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, we've been in Galatians for a while. We're in Galatians chapter 2, starting verse 11. We're probably going to be able to do this morning maybe to, to verse 16. So we won't do the whole section that Sarah read. But we've talked about a few things. The first one was we talked about gospel urgency. And so the very beginning was like, why do we need to be urgent about what the gospel is about? How, how, why do we need to be so clear about the gospel? And then the second one was gospel calling. We looked at Paul's conversion and we looked at how God calls us through the gospel by the power of the Spirit. And then we looked at a few other things. We looked at gospel unity in the beginning of chapter 2. And we saw that they were unified around the gospel. And they might have had differences, but the gospel was something that unified them. Last week we saw gospel generosity. And we looked at our hearts towards the poor as transformed by the gospel. This week we're going to see gospel confrontation. Okay? And how many of you guys are like not really into confrontation? How many of you guys are, yeah, whole family here. Um, it's very chill there at the, at the Tolapila home. Um, not into confrontation. Tasha and I aren't into the confrontation at all. Um, it's not necessarily a good or a bad thing that you're not into confrontation, but some of us really aren't into it, right? So we're around some people, they aren't getting along, and we're like quick to want to change the subject or kind of slink away, you know, while they're doing this. Imagine being around when Paul confronts Peter. This was done publicly. I mean, here you have two apostles, and one apostle, it says he opposed him to his face in front of everyone. This is an epic confrontation. Um, it would have been crazy to be there. You would have been like, uh, is this the end of our faith, or like, what's going on? You, you'll see that it's not, and it was super important. It was super important that Paul confront Peter. Why did he confront him? Uh, verse 11, take a look at it. It says, but when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, Paul is saying, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they, when they came, he drew back and separated himself from the Gentiles, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. You think, like, what's the big deal? What's going on here? Peter's not eating with these Gentile Christians anymore when these people come down from James. What's the big deal? The big deal is, guys, is that in the ancient world, eating with somebody was a way of showing acceptance. We have that, too, in our day. If you think about high school and you think about, like, there's a cool kid's table. There was a certain area, you know, that you knew whether you were really invited to eat there or not. And, but this isn't about being cool. This is about being clean, okay? This is about being clean. You see, the Mosaic teaching, the teaching of the Mosaic Law in the Old Testament in Leviticus was taught that you had to be ceremonially clean to be acceptable into worship with God. And so the book of Leviticus is, is obsessed with cleanness. It's obsessed with a, a type of cleanness, a ceremonial 
cleanness so that you could actually come into the presence of God for worship. And there's a whole list of things that you could or couldn't do or couldn't touch or who you couldn't be around and all these things. And the whole idea was to stay clean so you'd be accepted for worship. And of course, that book points us to the fact that like we can't keep ourselves clean. I mean, there's so many ways that you could become unclean. It shows us that there's a cleanness that can only be found in Christ. So these Gentiles, they were considered unclean. And contact with them, Jews having contact with them, would make them unclean. So the uncleanness is contagious just by contact. But um, the gospel that Paul preached, and Peter and James, they preached that you could be accepted before God based on faith alone. That, that faith alone made you clean before God. And so that you were acceptable to worship God just based on faith in Christ. And you didn't have to do all the things listed in Leviticus to do. And Peter taught this. Peter taught this, and he showed this by eating with Gentiles regularly, which would have been scandalous in his time amongst observant Jews. They would see this Jewish man that had come to trust in Jesus eating with Gentiles in Gentile homes, and it would have been a scandal. And we can see that throughout. Um, and so he, he did this. He ate with them until, it says verse 12, certain men came from James. Now, these certain men that came from James, we've seen in previous weeks that these were false teachers. These were people that had taken the gospel that James and those preached, and they distorted it. They distorted it, and they added the Mosaic Covenant and the Mosaic law-keeping and circumcision and food laws and all that, and said that if a Gentile is going to be acceptable before God, if he is or she is going to trust in Jesus as their Messiah, this Jewish Messiah, they're going to have to become a lot more Jewish. They're going to have to get circumcised. They're, if they're men, they're going to have to uh, observe the food laws and festivals to be clean. And so non-Jews would have to become a lot more Jewish to receive Jesus as their Messiah. That was the teaching. It wasn't James's teaching, but they would come down and they were distorting it. And actually the apostles, James and them, in Jerusalem, they knew this was happening. If you look at Acts 15, 24, the, the apostles in Jerusalem said, We have heard that some persons have gone out from us and have troubled you with words, unsettling your mind, although we gave them no instruction. So this was a constant problem, and they knew about this problem. And so these guys come, these people from James, um, he calls them the circumcision party, which I think is hilarious, because it's like, what kind of party is this, you know? It's like, hey, you want to come to my party? You know, like, what kind of party is this? It's a circumcision party, you know? It's like, oh, no thanks. <laughs> so these people, this circumcision party, they come, and Peter starts to no longer eat with the Gentiles. He was eating with them, now he's not eating with them anymore. And so what he's doing when he does that is he's basically saying that these Gentile Christians aren't clean by his behavior. He's saying they're not clean. He's saying they're not acceptable before God. And so that's why Paul in verse 14 says that I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Do you guys know that your actions can contradict the gospel you speak? So Peter preaches the gospel of acceptance of anyone who trusts in Jesus. They're clean before God. But then by his behavior, he contradicts it. The gospel says that Gentiles are clean and accepted by God merely by faith in Christ. His exclusion was saying, no, nope, they're not clean. Not only not clean, they still have a stain. Not only are they still unclean, but it's contagious to us who are pure. You see how like, incredibly devastating this was that Peter was doing this. And when Peter was separating himself from the Gentiles, he was also siding with those who preached racial superiority. I mean, keep that in mind. There's a huge division between Jews and Gentiles in that time. And there was a sense beyond the religious thing, there was racial superiority. And he's siding with them when he does this. Now, Paul indicates in verse 12 that the main reason Peter did this was fear, right? It was for fear of the circumcision party. 
But guys, you know, what is this thing about this, this superiority? Peter is actually casting his vote. He's actually siding with people that preached Jewish racial superiority. You know, guys, that without the gospel, our hearts are constantly trying to manufacture self-esteem. If we don't find our wholeness, acceptance, and our goodness in Christ, and we look to it as something in ourselves, our hearts are constantly trying to manufacture self-esteem. And we look for things that will prop it up, that will bolster our own sense of who we are. Our minds will constantly search for ways to see that we measure up. We all do this. Human beings do this. This is a natural urge that we do when we don't have the gospel. And we're constantly asking ourselves, how are we better than others and compare ourselves? And racial and national superiority is just one way of bolstering your self-esteem and feeling righteous. You know, I'm better than other people because of my race. I'm better than other people because of my nation. That was going on here. But you know, guys, you can manufacture self-esteem out of all kinds of other things, too. Um, That you're more intellectual than other people, that you're younger than other people, that you're older than other people, that you're more hardworking than other people are, that you're more affluent, or maybe that you live simpler than other people. There's all these different ways that we try to prop up our self-esteem and feel superior to others. Maybe in, in our context, you're more religious, you know, you're more moral than other people out there. Um, these are all forms of legalism, guys. Legalism is whenever we look to something other than Jesus to feel acceptable and clean. And inside, it produces fear and pride. Fear when we don't think we're doing that well at it. Pride when we think we are. We go back and forth between fear and pride. And then between us, it causes strife and exclusion. And that's what's happening here as he's excluding these people. He's siding with these false teachers that were clearly um, teaching some racial and national superiority. Um, and, And that made him feel righteous. You know, to be clean and to be acceptable to God, you have to become like us. You have to go through the process of becoming Jewish like us. But guys, the gospel brings the good news that God does not accept you based on your race or nation. And that should be really good news to us because almost none of us in this room were born into the right nation or race. There's only one race and one nation he ever chose, and almost none of you are a part of it. (laughs) I'm not. You know, and so it's good news to us that he doesn't, he doesn't welcome us based on that. Well, how does this relate to us? You think like, okay, this is a weird, you know, struggle they had, the eating, the not eating, and not accepting, and like, how does it relate to us as a church? It relates to us as a church, guys, because eating is still a powerful way of showing acceptance, isn't it? Eating together is still a powerful way of showing acceptance. You know, guys, that the main reason a person gives when they leave a church like ours, do you know what the main reason is? You say, you know, somebody will come to me and say, hey, you know, we're thinking of going somewhere else. I'm like, okay, you know, like, what's going on? You know what the main reason they'll give? I just don't feel connected. That's like 99% of the time. Because we're not the kind of church that we're going to, like, take some weird direction, change, and do something. We're like, we just do the same thing all the time. We just go through books of the Bible. So there's nothing exciting to get upset about, you know. They've gone emergent, you know, or they've gone this, or they've gone, we're like, we're not doing any of that stuff. And, you know, we're not very controversial. It's very unlikely we're going to outright offend you. Probably what's going to happen is you're going to say, I just don't feel connected. Or you're going to hear people say they don't feel connected. What are they saying when they say they don't feel connected? They're saying, I don't feel like I'm accepted or included or a part of the family. That's the main reason people leave. That's the main reason people leave. Eating, guys, has always been God's way of turning individual attenders into a family. Eating together. Isn't that weird? It's like a really simple thing. You think, you know, like, this wouldn't make a very good book on church growth, you know? Like... What do we do? Just eat together. Like, oh, is that it? You're like, I paid 10 bucks for this thing? You know, like, um, it, it's, it's God's way of doing it. It always has been. And I just want to challenge you guys at this. And for some of you, this will be a challenge. And for some of you, you'll be like, oh, that's fine. I do that all the time. Eat at least one meal a week with somebody in this church. 
It's not a family member. He'd be like, oh, I eat with my wife. No, like that's, you're breaking the rules again. <laughs> but um, I, I would just challenge you to start there. For a lot of us, that will be a challenge right there. So one out of 21 meals, whether it's breakfast, lunch, or dinner, whatever it is, it does, doesn't mean you have to like put together this extravagant thing, but just that you would physically sit down and eat with somebody outside your family in this church every week, one meal. And vary who it is. Make sure it's different types of people. I mean, we don't want to be a family that divides over class or age or politics or race or marital status or whether you have kids or not. People tend to, you know, go with people that are like them. Find somebody that's not like you. Find somebody that's not me. Okay? Because you could take this message and you could say like, oh, you know, I'll eat with Eric. I feel pretty connected actually. You know, like I'm feeling real connected right now. So, um, Find somebody, one person a week. I will eat with you, but I'm just saying, find somebody that's less connected than me. Um, and, and it's something, guys, that, that we can do. And don't say, yeah, you know, that'd be nice, but nobody invites me. No, invite them. And hospitality doesn't even require having a house. I mean, you could eat with somebody anywhere. It doesn't require, you know, doing some big elaborate thing. I think that stops us a lot of times is that, you know, like you're on Pinterest a lot, and so you have an idea of what, like, hospitality would look like. And it looks like something you can't accomplish for the next five years. You'd have to renovate your kitchen and get a new table. Like, there's a whole bunch of things. We're talking like a box of pizza, okay? Like, we're talking about very simple things, a large burrito that you would share. And some of you guys really excel at this. I mean, some of you guys in this church, you actually have people living with you. I mean, you excel in this. This is your thing. Um, I think of multiple of you when I think of something like this, and I'm convicted by the examples of some of you. Others of us need a little help. And so that's why I say, let's start somewhere. Let's start here. One, one meal a week. Um, and I know, guys, that there's cultural barriers. I know that in our culture, there's huge barriers to this. We are a very, very isolated culture. Do you guys agree? Extremely isolated. I mean, we have a couple people that we're willing to eat with, and that's it. I mean, we're very strange. I mean, even world culture and throughout history, this is maybe the most isolated culture ever. I don't know. Everybody always thinks their culture is whatever, the most whatever. But I think it would be very hard to think of a culture around the world or, you know, in history that was as isolated as we are. You know, we buy everything online. You know, we stream everything online. You can get all your groceries online. Like, it's one of those things. You know, you drive into your neighborhood. You click. You know, I have a guy that he clicks his garage door opener before I see his car. So I know he's coming. It's got amazing range. You know, I'm like outside and the garage door opens. Like, Here he comes. You know, like, it's wild. And then he comes around and this, you know. You know, so you got to get him at the mailboxes, you know, or whatever. you got to be that guy. Hey, you getting your mail? You know, it's like, yeah. I've been waiting. It's midnight, you know, like kind of a thing. And be that person. So one meal a week, one out of 27, 21 uh, meals. Um, because you know what's going to happen when you do that? Our church will begin to feel more like you, to you, like what it is, which is a family. It's a family. Families eat together. Families share their food. They share their homes. They share their possessions. That's what we see in Acts. I know people look at that and they go, oh, that was an Acts. It's like, no, that's just God's design is that we'd be a family. Rosaria Butterfield, I love her stuff. She said, the gospel comes with a house key. You know, the gospel comes with a house key. What does that mean? It means that hospitality is integral to how we show the gospel to each other, how we show acceptance. Hospitality and eating together, we show not just our personal acceptance of each other, but what we're showing is that we accept them into the covenant community. And, And this is a challenge to go beyond politely sitting next to each other. This is eating with each other, you know? This is, this is closer, and that's what Peter was failing to do. Isn't that strange? This is the thing that caused the big controversy. Um, think about what will happen around those meals. Think about how when you share your food, you share your life with people, right? Things just start to come out. Um, one of the problems we have as a church is that each person here probably thinks that 
they see their own burdens, but you don't see the burdens of other people. Like you think, like, I've got a list of things going on, and you do. You have legitimate issues going on in your life, and you think, but everybody else is fine. You know? Don't you have that impression? I know for a fact that all of you are a mess. Okay? Like, I know for a fact. How do I know? You told me. Okay? Like you told me. I look out, and I, I, I know you're all a mess because you told me. Um, tell each other. Right? Tell each other. That would be helpful. Start telling each other, and you tell each other around a meal. Just think, guys, of, of what will happen. The marriages that would be helped if you would eat together. The, the parents that would be strengthened. The, the, the prayers that would be offered. The burdens that would be shared and lightened. The fears that would go away by sharing them. You know, the sorrows that could be carried. I mean, it would be a taste of the kingdom. And it's just like around a burrito. I mean, this is like, it's a supernatural thing God does. Eat together, okay? One meal a week with somebody in the church. Um, Peter's failure here, guys, um, it shows us the value of hospitality. It shows us that eating together is a physical symbol of gospel inclusion. Isn't that wild? Eating together is a physical symbol of gospel inclusion. Romans 15, 7, Paul said this. He said, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Isn't that awesome? That when we welcome one another as Christ welcomed us, it glorifies God. Um, and this is what Peter failed to do. When he stopped eating with non-Jewish Christians, he was actually preaching a false gospel by his behavior. And the false gospel is this, that even though they were the, these Gentiles were trusting in Jesus, they were still unclean and unacceptable. Peter's life was not in step with the gospel. And so Paul moves in to confront him. Um, when you see this not in step with the gospel, the Greek basically says it, it was not ortho-walking. And you think about the word ortho, the word orthodontist or straight or in line with. He's saying that this was not ortho-walking with the gospel. It was not in straight line. It was not in alignment with the gospel. Um, Peter needed an alignment. He was out of alignment with the gospel. And I do a lot of work. Um, I, I am a horse vet. And so my driving is almost so like dirt roads and roads that would be better off if they were dirt roads. <laughs> okay, those are the kinds of roads that I drive on. And so as I'm driving on them, like there's this constant banging of the front end and you get out of alignment, right? And if you don't, your tires rotate and balance and alignment and stuff like that, you're, you, you know, these tires, which are a fortune to buy for a truck, you know, they're gone in like six months, right? You're out of alignment, you're wearing it. Um, we are constantly being knocked out of alignment from the gospel, guys. And Christian growth is about getting regular gospel alignments, okay? That's what we need. We need this because we need it even more because not only is it being banged around, but we actually tend to pull to the side of thinking that our goodness and our keeping of the law and is what makes us acceptable before God. We tend to pull, our steering tends to pull to the direction of thinking that we have to measure up to some sort of moral standard to be, to be right with God. Now, whether that moral standard is a religious one or one you made up, or just comparing yourself to other people. That's what we tend to do. And so we need an alignment. You need frequent alignments because Peter needed it. Guys, if Peter needed a gospel alignment, you need a gospel alignment frequently. I mean, this whole deal about eating, you know, unclean foods, you know, foods that were now determined to be clean, um, eating with Gentiles, this was thoroughly covered with Peter. This is not like a new thing, okay? Jesus told him about this already, and he's the one that had the vision, right? You remember the vision? Like, God wants him to go to Cornelius' house to share the gospel. Cornelius is a Gentile. God knows that Peter's going to have a real strong resistance to do this, so he has that vision about the, the sheet comes down, and all the animals are spread out, and they're animals that they would not have been able to eat as Jews. And what, is, what does God say to him? Arise, kill, and eat, right? Like, 
eat this food, take, eat this food. And he's like, oh, no, I could never, you know. And God's like, no, do it, you know. And then he does in this vision. And that was to teach him that now that barrier was gone, that barrier of clean, unclean foods was gone. And he was to, he was to eat with Gentiles. And as he ate with them, he shared the gospel with them. And then they come to Christ. And it's so cool because Peter takes that story to his other Jewish Christians and tells them, like, this is what happened. I, uh, you know, I ate with them. And they're like, you ate with them? And he's like, yeah, I ate with him. And let me tell you more. I ate with him, and then I shared the gospel with him. And he's like, you shared the gospel? Yes. Hold on. And then the Holy Spirit came upon him, and they got saved. And they were like, well, what can we do? God's saving Gentiles. You know, it was that kind of a thing, right? It was crazy. They're like, well, you know, what do we do? I guess we got to eat with him. You know, Peter knew this. And here's Peter falling for this, right? He's falling for this. He's falling back into it. He needed realignment. And so God sends Paul to realign him. And notice that Paul does two things when he confronts him. He shows Peter his sin, but he also shows Peter his hope. And I love the way he confronts him in this gospel way. First, he shows Peter his sin. In verse 11, Paul corrects him firmly and publicly because Peter is an apostle and doing public damage to the gospel. Because you might think like, well, what about Matthew 18? You're supposed to go to him privately and then work that out. If that doesn't work out, you bring another person or two involved, and you kind of work that out, and then, and then it becomes public, right? That's what Matthew 18 says to do. Keep a sin, you know, keep the issue as small as possible for as long as possible. Give the person time to repent. He doesn't do that, right? Paul just does it, you know, publicly. Why? Because Peter is an apostle, and he's doing public damage to the gospel. So you look in verse 11, he says, when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. I mean, this is serious business, right? Or in verse 14, it says, I said to Cephas before all of them, okay? So he just comes out and he does it before all of them. And it was a problem because it was spreading too, right? This hypocrisy spreading. He, Paul says, Barnabas was like his, his buddy, his, his, his companion, and he's like, even Barnabas was going along with it. He couldn't believe it. it. It was hugely destructive. And so look at verse 14. He said, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the gospel, the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before all of them, listen to what he says, if you, this, this is in front of Jew and Gentile Christians in front of the church. He says, if you, Peter, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, because he was, and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? He says this in front of all of them. And you don't see Peter go like, he's, there's no response, right? Peter got seriously roasted here. Like, Peter is like a crispy piece of kosher turkey bacon at this point, right? Like, there's nothing he can say. It says in uh, verse 11 that he stood condemned. There was nothing Peter could say about this. But notice that Paul doesn't just show Peter his sin. He shows him hope in, the, in, in, in Christ. If you take a look at your Bible, where do your quotation marks stop? When you look at um, verse 14, it starts in, it says, uh, I said to Cephas before all of them, quote, if you living like a Jew. Where do those quotation marks end for you in your Bible? Mine end at the end of verse 14. Some Bibles end at the verse 16, verse 15, a bunch of different places. There's no quotation marks, actually, in, in the Greek original, right? There's no quotation marks there. So they have to try and figure out where the quotation marks should be. I believe those quotation marks should not just include verse 14. If you look at verse 15, he says, we ourselves are Jews. I think he's still talking to Peter here because they're both Jews, whereas this letter is to a largely Gentile church. So I think he's continuing to talk to him. And if you follow those we's, those inclusive we's, they continue down for several verses. Why is this important? I think that Paul doesn't just give Peter the sin confrontation in verse 14, but he gives him the whole gospel discourse that happens all the way down through verse 21. This means that, that Paul gave Peter the hope of the gospel even as he sharply confronts him. Isn't that cool? 
So all this stuff that we read, all this encouraging stuff about the gospel, he gave him when he confronted him. Look at verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth. This really sounds like he's talking to Peter and not Gentile sinners. And yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believe in Christ in order to be justified in faith and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul's saying, Peter, we have the advantage. We were born into God's chosen nation, but we know that a person is not, verse 16, not justified by works of the law. So we also have believed in Christ. I love how he says that, we also. He's including Peter. He's saying, this is what the gospel is, and you and I both trust in this. You know, Peter's not the enemy right now. He's not the enemy. He needs correction. But he's like, we trust in Jesus, remember? Like, we've been justified in Jesus. He's reminding him of the gospel. I love that he does that. Paul doesn't just blast Peter for his sin. He does that. Peter's totally crispy, like we talked about. But Paul also reminds Peter of his hope in the gospel. Paul doesn't just want Peter to see his sin. He wants him to see his hope. And I just want to tell you guys, when you confront somebody in their sin, if you confront them with grace as a motivator, you can correct them very firmly and very sharply, and they still believe that you're for them. Right? Yeah, Paul would have, it, because he gave grace to motivator, Peter, though addressed sharply and firmly, would have felt pulse for me. He says, we believe in Christ. We've been justified in Christ. He's reminding him of the gospel. I love that. And so do that when you confront people. Make sure you give them the gospel, not just your correction. Because our main problem is that we lose our bearings. We've lost our bearings. When, when, a, when a husband or a wife are in difficulty with each other, they've lost their bearings on the gospel, Right? When a person becomes trapped in habitual sin, they've lost their bearings on the gospel. You know, when somebody's doing something like this and they're damaging the unity of the church, they've lost their bearings on the gospel. And it, we have, we're not walking in step with the gospel. We need realignment. And so Peter, Paul uh, describes to him here the gospel, but with a new metaphor. Because we were seeing the gospel as a metaphor of cleanness and uncleanness, right? There's another metaphor being introduced in this passage, and it's the metaphor of justification. You see that there? He talks about being justified before God. Um, justification is a term that's borrowed not from the temple courts like cleanness would be, but from the law courts. So Paul is using a law court image here to talk about salvation, to talk about the gospel. And justification has to do with a judge's legal declaration on a defendant. So there'd be a trial and then the judge would deliver a declaration of that person's guilt or not guilt or even righteousness. Our culture talks about justification too, but in the sense more of personal, right? So you say, oh, you're just trying to justify your actions, you know? Uh, and we do that, right? We're, we've got an impulse in our, in, our, in our hearts to try and justify our own actions. This isn't speaking of a person justifying themselves. This is talking about God, the ultimate judge, declaring on our lives his final judgment, okay? What he does at the final judgment, where he makes a rendering. And I know to modern people, when they hear final judgment, they start to roll their eyes, don't they? People start to roll their eyes. They start to think, oh, yeah, that's so old school to talk that way. Guys, what could be more important than to know that God declares you righteous? What in the world, guys, could be more important than knowing your future forever is secure and will only be filled with joy instead of being filled with everlasting misery? There is nothing more important than knowing what God's verdict is on our lives. How can we know for sure that God declares us righteous? How can we know for sure that we're justified? How can we know that b before God we are in the right in such a way that he welcomes us into his kingdom? 
Well, you can see in verse 16, it's not by works of the law. Look at verse 16. He says, yet we know that a person is not justified or declared righteous by works of the law. And then you drop a little bit further down. It says, not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. He's saying law keeping is not the way. It's impossible to keep God's law in such a way that on the final day, he would tell you, you are righteous. You are accepted. You are welcome to enter my kingdom. And it's impossible because we don't keep it all. We never do. Look at Galatians 3.10. He says, for those who rely, listen to the word rely. For those who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do them. He's saying that our law keeping, guys, is selective, right? We have certain ones that are kind of our strengths, right? And so we do those. We have others that we find very difficult and we don't do those well. The, the natural impulse of us is to think that we kind of grade ourselves on a curve and we think, well, you know, I'm a lot better than a lot of other people. I'm probably far enough on this side to where I'm righteous. It doesn't work that way. He says in Galatians 3.10 that law-keeping is an all-or-nothing thing. So if you're going to go, okay, I want to be right with God. I want to make sure my future is secure with him, that I will you know, enjoy everlasting, ever-increasing joy in his presence versus you know, I don't want to go to hell. How can I know that I'm righteous? And you're going to pick a path? He says, do not pick law-keeping. If you pick law-keeping, you've got to do the entire thing. There's no little bits to it, but there's another path. Take a look at what it is, verse 16. He says, not through works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. What is faith? You know, our culture has a lot of weird definitions of faith. Well, you can see a bit of the definition by looking at the other word he uses for faith here. He says, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so we also have what? Believed. Okay, so faith is believing in, faith is trusting in. Faith is hoping in Jesus to provide all the things necessary to be right with God. So then on the final day, if God were to ask you, I don't think it works this way, why should I, you be allowed into my kingdom? You'd say, I'm with him. And you'd point to Jesus. That he would supply everything you need for right standing with God. That's what faith is about. And guys, your faith does not earn your salvation. I think sometimes we have it mixed up and we think this way. So there's law keeping. You keep the law, but you'd have to keep it 100%. So we're not going to do that. So I'm going to go the faith route. And my faith earns me salvation. Your faith does not earn you salvation, okay? Faith is not a meritorious work. It isn't, because that's a problematic thing too, because how much do you have to believe? How much do you believe right now? How much do you believe on Monday morning? <laughs> okay, it goes up and down. Your salvation would be in jeopardy, right? Faith is not a work that we do to earn salvation. Faith is like this. Faith connects us to the saving benefits of Jesus, a good example is a drowning person. So if I was drowning in the water and I cry out for a lifeguard to come and save me, my cry didn't save me, did it? Who saved me? The lifeguard saved me, right? So faith in Christ is an empty hand that reaches out for all that Jesus has for us. It doesn't save us. It isn't like God goes, oh, faith, I'll reward that with heaven. No, faith connects us to the rewards that Jesus earned. Okay, and this is good news, guys, and I mentioned this before because this is great news to people that struggle with doubts and fears, and their faith goes up and down a lot. Mine goes up and down a lot. I deal a lot with doubts. I have lots of times where my faith is very low. In those times, am I less secure? I'm not less secure. I gave you this example before, but some of you weren't here. Imagine two people take a flight, okay? Two people take a flight. One person's like completely comfortable with flying. They think this plane's going to be great. Everything's going to go fine. They sit down. They sit in their chair. They don't need a cocktail. They go to sleep. They enjoy the whole flight, right? Another person gets in, and they trust in the plane. They get enough to get in, 
And while they're in, they kind of alternate between saying, this is amazing technology, this is great, and going, I think we're all going to die, you know? Back and forth, back and forth, right? Which one makes it to their destination? Both of them, because they're both in the plane. If you trusted in Christ, you are in Christ. You will make it to your destination, even as your faith goes up and down. Isn't that good news? Your faith doesn't earn salvation. It connects you to who Jesus is. He's the lifeguard. We cry out. Faith is the empty hand that reaches out to receive Christ's life-giving rescue. And guys, here's the amazing news about justification by faith. If you come to Jesus and place your trust in him, he will save you, and he'll do it by this. His perfect law-keeping record will become your record. And God the judge will declare you righteous now. Okay? It's not that you trust in Christ He gives you a perfect law record, and then like later, that declaration in the future is the one that matters. He declares you righteous now. The moment you trust in him, you're declared righteous. That's what it means to be justified by faith, guys. God declares you legally righteous now. Think of it this way. Your judgment day, which you may have thought about a lot or maybe not thought about till today, your judgment day that's coming when Christ returns, that judgment day has been moved from the future into the past. If you're trusting in Christ, your sin was already judged. It was judged in 33 AD. And the verdict of righteous was given to you the moment you trusted in Christ. So you don't have a judgment day later that's going to determine whether you are accepted before God or not. Your judgment day from the future has been moved into the past if you trust in Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. And this is way better news, guys, than legalistic religion gives you. Because with legalistic religion, you always, you never really know what your eternal destination is. It's always up in question right up until the day of judgment. If you ask people who are honest and are a part of a legalistic religion, they'll you say, do you, know, do you know you're going to heaven? You know what they'll say? I don't know. We'll see. I hope so. I'm trying. Right? It's in question. It's in question until the final day. Is this something you want to wait and find out later whether you got this right or not? No. Justification by faith says that you have been declared righteous now. Your judgment day has been moved from the future into the past. Sin totally dealt with on the cross, paid for, judged. Your sin was rightly judged on the cross in Jesus. And the, the, the pronouncement of righteous was given you the moment you trust in Jesus. That good news? That's something you should share. Like, there's a lot of people out there, I mean, even religious people are like, they don't know. They don't know how God is ultimately going to deal with them. And this beautiful truth, guys, is exactly what Peter needed to hear. Because, you know, Peter, he was afraid. He was afraid. It says in verse 12, it says that he, he drew back and separated himself for fear of the circumcision party, right? Peter was afraid. He was afraid of the verdict of these legalists. So the, these legalistic teachers come down and, you know, he's in a Gentile city and these are Jewish people and they're kind of his people and they come down and he fears what they're going to say about him. He fears their verdict. He fears what they'll think about him. And he wasn't walking in step with the gospel because he was afraid. Um, Paul calls what Peter did hypocrisy in verse 13. So apparently, Peter didn't change his gospel beliefs. He lost his gospel bravery, right? He still believed justification by faith, but he wasn't living that way. Why? Because of fear. The approval of these legalists was more important to him in that moment than, than making the gospel clear to these Gentiles. That's why he stopped eating with them. There's this book called, and I love this book, it's called When, um, when People Are Big and God is Small, and it's a book about human approval and stuff like that, really good, it's Ed Welsh, uh, and he just goes through all the passages, there's a ton of them on human approval and fear of man and all those kinds of things like Peter was dealing with, but I love the title, When People Are Big and God is Small, that's the problem, right? That's the problem with Peter here, these people were big and God was small to him. Peter was afraid of the verdict of these legalists, so Peter didn't just need to see his sin, he needed that. 
And he didn't just need to hear this. Like, Paul could have come to town and said, you know what, Peter? If you were a real committed Christian, you'd stand up to them. Like me. I mean, that's one way we could do it, right? Like, that's the implication. Even if you don't say like me, that's what you mean. If you're really committed, you'd be doing this and this and this. The implication is like me. What are we doing there? We're putting force on the will. We're saying, hey, you know, stir yourself up and get your own resources going and, and, and do it. No, Peter needed to feel afresh that his judgment day had been moved from the future into the past. He needed to see God's verdict on him and Christ was righteous. He needed to hear, Peter, if you believe this, you don't have to fear the verdict of these so-called teachers, right? If you really believe that God's verdict on you is righteous, he's the only judge that matters. You don't need their approval. You've got Christ's approval when you trusted in him. You know, why would you care about the verdict of these lower courts when you have, you're righteous before the only court that matters? I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 3. He said this, um, with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. Did you love that? Right? All these lower courts and what they think about us, he says, it's a very small thing to be judged by you or any human court. Why? Because he had his security in the gospel. Guys, the gospel is the power to both break our temptation to feel superior and our fear of being judged inferior. It's all found in the gospel. And when we realign to that, we have a life that glorifies him as a beautiful display of who he is. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.